0: WEEI Studios 93.7 WEEI FM and HD1 Lawrence, Boston We're always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for Sunday Mass with Christian Arcan on WEEI
1: Lakers tonight go to 500 on the season with their eighth road win and a big night for Austin Reeves with 32 points after 28 a couple nights ago in Atlanta. Boston again getting no closer than six in the fourth. And the Lakers win it.
2: Ugh, sorry to have to play that for you, folks. I'm still not over that game. That was, that was so bad. Ugh. And not just because I thought Chris Daps Porzingis was going to score more than 18 and a half points in that game and stuck on 17. One more jump. You couldn't leave him in for one more minute there, Joe. Uh, but because Austin Reeves. Austin Reeves dropped 32 points on you. D'Angelo Rudd, those guys do not want to get traded. Those guys like LA. <laughs> those guys, those guys were making their case with each one of those three pointers. They hit right in someone's face. Uh, Jalen Brown defending on the perimeter. Seemed like he was just kind of giving up on some of those screens, leaving those guys open for three. Derek White, Holiday. I mean, we all we all saw it. That That was one thing I would not have expected. Of all the things to kind of break down for this team. And they've had breakdowns this year. I mean, they've had team-wide breakdowns for sure. And I'd consider that one definitely right up there. I know they only lost by single digits, but... Losing by single digits to that Lakers team is the same. I, th- I put that on the same level as getting blown out by Milwaukee and L.A. All right, I mean it's it's right up there. I'd, I'd consider those in the in the same ballpark for sure. Holiday played, White played, Brown played, Tatum played. You know those no guys LeBron, were all playing. Right? No LeBron, no Davis, and you got seen <laughs> by. By the Lakers G League team, basically. I mean, that's what they are. After that, unless you're a big Rui Hachimura fan, he came out. He was coming off the bench, or uh, Christian Wood, who five years ago people thought was going to be the future of the big man in the NBA. <laughs> he got in there. He got. He had a point or two. I think he hit a three in that game. Um, last week I was concerned that the Celtics weren't gearing up for the big teams anymore. That they were kind of just, you know, coasting a little bit. And how, despite having some flaws, the Celtics of the last three, four years circled certain games on the calendar and made it, you know, made a point of... uh, And I didn't love that it was, you know, some night on, some night off, but you can accept that anyway. I mean, that's, you know, good teams that that happens with. Celtics haven't won anything yet to sort of justify it. I saw Ordway this week. Uh, was talking about the 86 Celtics and how, you know, you can't criticize these Celtics now because even back in 86, you know, they had some bad losses and took some games off and the effort wasn't there certain nights and blah, 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 blah. And all that's fine. But by 86, the set, those Celtics have won two already. That was They were working on their third. These Celtics haven't won anything. And that's why it's a little more frustrating to sort of watch them, as good as they are, come up short in situations like this. They don't have championships to fall back on. They don't have championship pedigree to sort of point to and say, yeah, but we'll be okay. When the Cavaliers weren't finishing first in the East those years or the Heat weren't, you know, first in the East, you didn't say, well, I don't know if LeBron James has that championship mentality like you knew he did. And I mean the Cavs the second time around and the Heat after they won the first two. Well, I guess they only won two, but you know what I mean. Um, You didn't have those same kind of thoughts because they'd won before. So I don't necessarily buy that comparison with this team. This team's still waiting to break through. And it's one thing to break through to the point where you're the top team in the league right now which they are and you carry that through the season and you have the best record and you know you're the one seed or close to it or whatever it is and that's something you do consistently every year. But until you break through and win one that doesn't work out in your favor. That just shows that you can play when the you know, when the chips aren't really out there. And then when you got a full table and your chips are all in, you fall apart. Or you get surprised by someone. Shouldn't be getting surprised by Steph Curry, but that kind of happened. Shouldn't be getting surprised by Jimmy Butler anymore, but that happened last year. Shouldn't get surprised by Caleb Martin, but you know, we all watch the same games. And that is a team wide thing, but it's also a Tatum and Brown thing. Uh, Jalen Brown was horrifically bad in that Laker game. Defensively, offensively, he was eight points on 12 shots, four of 12 from the field with uh, three turnovers. He was brutal. I'm not sure that the Jalen Brown lookalike would have been much worse (laughs) in that Laker game, honestly. Uh, If it continues, they should give him an opportunity. I'm just kidding. Um, but I'm not kidding about my concern with this team. It's been a rough couple of weeks for them. On January 17th, they were 20-0 and at home. They're 2-3 and three since then. And again, it's not to say that teams don't go through ruts, don't have rough spots. They do. Championship teams do. And you know sometimes teams that don't have any rough spot they uh, crap out at the end like the seventy three and nine Warriors who did not win the championship that year and then got Kevin Durant the next year <laughs> okay like it's a it's a trade off sometimes but that team had already won eighty six Celtics had already won the Heat and the Cavs and the Lakers they you know LeBron had won already. This team doesn't have that luxury. Six one seven 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 nine seven ninety three seven. Let's go to the phones and talk to Matt in Rhode Island. He's been waiting patiently to talk about the Celtics and Joe Missoula. Go ahead, Matt.
3: Yeah, yeah. Just quick though on the on the Red Sox, like you were talking about Theo, and obviously I love Theo. Theo did business a whole different way, like with the Nomar trade. Like he would look guys in the eye, and you know he brought a lot of that to you know under a lot of pressure. Brought brought his world championships. I just think this is a self serving thing with them that they're bringing him in. Uh, I mean, you can't help but to have a little bit in the back of your head, like you know that, that I do love it, but I'm not really buying into too much of it. But everyone loves Theo in Boston. Obviously. I love Theo and Boston uh, Mizzou- too,
2: Matt. But I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, just like you are. What do you got on the Celtics?
3: Oh, totally, Missoula. Missoula can't coach at the NBA level, dude. You know, you, you got a game like against the Lakers with those two guys out. You you, you can put whoever you want on, on your bench on the block and just feed it down low. Like you'll take forty eight three pointers, you get to the line seven times, and he's such a jackass after like who do you think you are, buddy man? You've never done anything in this town. You want to act like a jerk afterwards, like, oh, I love their shot selection. Man, this is not gonna work, okay. This is gonna be a rewind of last year. All Thank right. Thank you.
2: Thanks for the comment. Appreciate it. I like Joe Missoula lately at the at the podium. I like the stuff he's been saying. I like how he's holding them accountable. I like how he's going after him. He tried different things in that game. I know they kept shooting threes. But they were trying different rotations. They were trying different guys out there. Um, you know, they they worked in a bunch of uh, they ex- uh, expanded the bench. Nothing really worked. Offensively, nothing was working. Did they shoot too many threes? Yeah, maybe. I mean, fine. They could have shot fewer threes, I guess. I didn't love anything that was going on with them offensively. And I feel like he did try and, and mix it up a little bit. Did he keep falling back on three and running plays to getting uh, threes? Yeah, sure, uh, fine. That's part of his philosophy. It's a philosophy that is not going anywhere, I don't think. But there were much deeper issues. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look at that game and say that Joe Missoula coached it so poorly that they lost to Austin Reed. Like I'm just, that's not, that's not gonna happen. That is, that was on the players. The players deserve the blame for that. Uh, I think even invoking Joe Missoula after a game like that lets them way too much off the hook, and they don't deserve to be. Um, yes, Joe? What's your nightmare matchup for the finals? We make it to the finals. What's your nightmare matchup from the West? Um, I want to say Denver, but it might be the Clippers. Clippers are scary. It might be the what Clippers. They yeah, they're playing really well right now. They're healthy. And they also have – here's here's why. More so than, like, a team like Minnesota, who's really good, or even Denver. Like, they have young players on those teams. The thing about the Clippers that scares me is that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are guys who have been doing it for a while and who, when Tatum and Brown broke into the league, you know, they looked up to those guys. Harden, too, to a lesser extent. But definitely guys like George, definitely Kawhi. Um, and I, you sort of remember that dynamic when they were playing the – When they were playing the Nets. And I know they beat the Nets. But it took them a while to break through. And I do always sort of feel like there was a little bit. of Jimmy Butler's kind of got that too. Like pretty much anybody. When Jalen Brown first got here. And then they drafted Jason Tatum. There was a lot of like Jalen Brown suggested trades. And they were for all these different guys. Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Anthony David. Like all these guys. Whenever it came to the trade deadline. Well, the Celtics, if they want to, you know, match Kyrie up with this guy or whoever, and it was all those kind of guys. The best, like, swing men scorers in the league at the time. Not all of them, but some of them. And that kept coming up. It kept coming up every year at the trade deadline. Even after Kyrie was gone, okay, well, you could trade Jalen Brown for this guy. You could trade him for this guy, trade him for that guy. There were millions, and Brown hated that, by the way. He talked about that, I think, with the New York Times last year, whenever it was, he does not like that his name keeps coming up in these trade uh, offers, but that happened year after year after year. And I think that those guys that he was mentioned in in trades for, there's still a little bit of that, you know, oh, boy, there's there's Kawhi Leonard. Ooh, there's Kevin Durant. There's these guys. And I know that they beat the Nets, but they weren't healthy. Brooklyn wasn't. And they're also aging out a little bit, which you could say about the Clippers, but the Clippers are killing it right now. Not to mention those two guys are great defensively, and they probably match up on your two guys, and then, you know, you let the rest of them fight it out. And in a situation like that, as much as I love Chris Tapps for I mean, I don't know if he can carry a team or anything. And I know that those two guys can disappear. I know Brown and Tatum can disappear in the playoffs when it matters because they've been doing it recently. 617 uh, 779 is the phone number. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to resume our Red Sox conversation. I see your Red Sox calls lined up on the phones. We'll get to that right after Trending.
0: Sunday Mass
2: continues
0: right now with Christian Arcan on WEEI. I've never felt Fenway Park the way it felt for that one game playoff against the Yankees when Xander took Garrett Cole deep. The place almost came down. Why? We were winning baseball games. We're playing in October. When we have two sucky seasons like we've had, these are natural questions. We have to take them. But I can tell you, as a kid who grew up less than a mile from Fenway Park, if you think for one second that we aren't passionate committed, dedicated to the Boston Red Sox, you're wrong, you're a liar, and I'll correct you, you on to it. know why?
2: You know, I didn't even know about this song until I saw it on Beavis and Butthead. That's fantastic. And, I mean, Beavis and Butthead, like, man. You know what I want to do? You need to help me with this, Joseph. Because I'm an old, lame guy on Twitter now. But you know how on Twitter now everyone's like, who's got that one clip from, like, a show? And then everybody posts, like, clips from a show. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's an engagement farming thing. I don't love doing that, but I don't want it to like engagement so I can get paid by Twitter. I'm not going to get paid by Twitter, but I want to start one of those of like Beavis and Butthead clips. How do I do that without looking old and lame? How do I do that without being like, who's got that one Beavis and Butthead clip? Because that I I know I'll look lame if I do that. Is there a way that I can do this and not look lame? I think you just got to lean into it. You can yeah. just ask for what you want and people will give you what you want. Yeah, it's the internet. I know, but uh, you're f- you know, people will love it. No, they won't. They're gonna be <laughs> like, oh, how do you do, fellow kids? That whole thing, you know? I'm gonna get dad, the Steve Buscemi, all up and down my timeline if I do that. Nah. I just want everyone to share Beavis and Butthead clips. Your favorite Beavis and Butthead clips, share them on my timeline. When they watch that Henry Rollins video, tremendous. When they watched that video of Sadat, I remember it was like, "Question, <laughs> man, funk that." <laughs> that was one of the best. Beavis does an impression of uh, Andy Rooney. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, I want to. I want to do that on Twitter. But I'm just. I'm self conscious about it because I know I'm old and lame. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe I just have to lean into it. Just, maybe get, I just, yeah, have just what you have to look old and lame. Yeah. yeah, you know that's that's the way it goes. Uh, anyway, Sam Kennedy there <laughs> calling us all liars, and if that's true, then I'm a liar, just like Henry Rollins, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the Theo thing, first of all, someone lied about that when they were looking for a a chief baseball officer. They said, well, what about Theo? Theo's not coming back. Um, I know he meant his chief baseball officer, so maybe I'm stretching a little bit there, but Theo is very much back. And, uh, some people are really into this. I want to be into this. I want to enjoy this, but I'm having a hard time. I've been hurt before by this team. I've been hurt before by this ownership group. And I know that this is the same ownership group that has brought me four World Series champions. And if my grandfather ever heard that, guy rest his soul, he'd be slapping me around saying, what are you complaining about four World Series for? <laughs> my grandfather was born in 1911. And there was a long stretch of no World Series for him. He did see a few. He saw. I don't know if you saw them, but, you know. Nineteen eighteen, he was like seven years old. He definitely saw he saw Harry Hooper and those guys, you know, the rounding the bases, Babe Ruth, uh, when he was a Red Sox. So it's not like he didn't see anything. But then there was a long stretch, and he didn't make it to he didn't make it to four. So you know, like that's that's kind of the point. These guys did bring World Series multiple World Series to to Boston. They did it with Theo. They did it without Theo. Uh, different ways of building a team, different ways of budgeting, different ways of of choosing managers, all that stuff. They did it in a variety of different ways. It wasn't all Theo. I mean, Theo was the beginning of it, sure. But Theo left and went to Chicago, and the Red Sox won two more World Series. They won right after he left. And then four or five years later, they won with uh, Dave Dombrowski in charge. And that, I guess, is the big question: is that they spent when they when Dave Dombrowski was here? Did Dave Dombrowski talk them into spending, or was that just the philosophy at the time? That's what I keep hearing. Well, Theo's going to talk them into spending, is he? Is that what Dombrowski did, or was that just the way they were doing business then? Is that just something? Was that an organizational decision that they made? And if those are the, the if that's the way that they're doing things, we're going to spend now. We're not going to spend here. We're going to spend this year, and then we're going to hold off for a couple years. Okay. So then what the hell difference does it make if Theo's here or not? Theo's not the billionaire who's signing the checks. He's a minority owner. It's different, and he's a consultant. He's going to be there consulting. And there's been a lot written about how he's going to have a specific focus on the Red Sox, and that's going to be where he uh, has uh, puts all his time in and everything. And that's great. I hope that he does. He's had a Midas touch with everything he's ever done in baseball. Everything. But he's not here as an employee anymore. You know, like, he's not working for the Henrys. Now he's part of the ownership group. And the ownership group, as we can all sort of tell, has a monetary interest in this, a fiduciary interest in it. Like, that seems to be where the Red Sox are in their portfolio now, much more so than bringing in someone to get down in the in the weeds and figure out how to save the rotation or but how to, you know, do these other things. If it's another way to try and save money, then they're saving money. They're slashing payroll. They have to hire Theo Epstein to, tell, to come in and tell him, hey, maybe don't slash payroll anymore. They need a Theo Epstein to tell him to be in on Shoei Otani. Like, you see what I mean? They need a Theo Epstein to tell him don't trade Mookie Betts. They know who those guys are. So what's Theo going to do exactly? Well, in 2004, he got uh, John Henry to trade for Kurt Schilling. Okay. I mean, really, did he really twist his arm for that one? would they trade? Casey Fossum? Like, it wasn't... You know, like it wasn't like they gave up some big crown jewels of their, uh, it was probably took a, uh, more convincing to trade Nomar. Now that was different. That was something you had to convince them to do. And there were other areas where you got them to spend on Dice K, which was, you know, just a posting fee was more than anyone had ever paid before. Got him to do that. It seemed like they got him to do things back when they cared more about the team. Back when the team was more of a priority, back when they didn't have all these other things on their radar and uh, in their portfolio, I, I don't see how you could how you could miss that at this point. Um, let's take a quick Red Sox call here before the break. John in the car has been waiting patiently to talk about Theo. Go ahead, John,
0: listen. I think it's like a multi-headed thing here, but two 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 issues. Number one, like just because they brought Theo in doesn't mean they're going to be good immediately. Like I'm not I'm not believing that in, in the slightest. Mm-hmm. But at least like. Now they just don't have, you know, Stacey James out there, you know, spinning everything as a positive left and right and Sam Kennedy and, like, trying to defend the ownership because they can't make a baseball decision to save their lives. Like, one of the biggest issues I think we've all had with this team over the past, not just when Bloom was there, but even with Dombrowski, is that there's, like, there's they just pivot, pivot. Oh, course correction, pivot, pivot. Now, like, with Theo, potentially – there's going to be a long-term plan for this team other than like, uh-oh, we've sucked for a while, got to build the farm team back up. Uh-oh, we sucked for a while, got to spend some money and bring in Dombrowski. Like, now at least, like, we can maybe manage both at the same time and not just be like, you know, one one thing, one yeah. one trick pony. I hear you, but at the same time, I do think he's, he's probably going to be the one that's going to be able to, like, keep them in baseball decisions and still keep them under budget. Whatever it is, like, all right. I mean, being under
2: budget be hasn't been a problem for them, John. By the way, John, you a Beavers and Butthead fan? Right, but uh, like, a, a
0: little bit, a little, little bit.
2: bit. Okay, so you don't. think – I was going to say, how how should I go about this Twitter quest that I'm on? <laughs> he doesn't know. He's not a big enough fan. Um, we're going to talk with uh, Sean McAdam here in about two minutes. Sean McAdam and Chris Cotillo over at Mass Live have a uh, piece up on Mass Live now that I believe they posted. I want to say it was late Friday night um, about what Theo's return means to the Red Sox and why they brought him back, and I don't want to read the whole thing, but I'll just tell you what they what they wrote, uh, and we'll ask McAdam about it here in a minute. So, it's according to people with an understanding of the arrangement between Epstein and the Red Sox, he was brought back into the fold, at least in part due to Red Sox ownership privately acknowledging and also to uh, us here, that they have at times not given the club the attention it has deserved in recent years as the Fenway Sports Group portfolio has rapidly grown. Interesting. Epstein, despite taking on a part-time behind-the-scenes advisory role that includes involvement in all of FSG's properties, which is another part of this, by the way. Epstein has been part of a, uh, a group that already has a stake in Fenway Sports Group. It's not like he's been very far away. So we'll ask McAdam about that as well. But he will be in part tasked with reinstituting processes and lines of communication that made the Red Sox so successful during his tenure as GM from 2003 to 2011. Despite Sam Kennedy and others repeatedly reaffirming the ownership group's commitment to the Red Sox publicly, within the organization there has been an eternal realization that the club needs to be more of a priority for FSG and that winning fans back is paramount after three last-place finishes in four years and a disappointing offseason that has included inconsistent rhetoric from Team Brass. Here with more on that, the uh, co-author of this piece that I'm reading from right now, uh, my friend and yours, the great Sean McAdam, joins us here on the program. Sean, how you doing?
1: I'm fine, Christian. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in with uh, your piece and uh, you and Chris's piece, I should say, on Theo Epstein. Um, first of all, are you surprised by how skeptical it would appear and I don't know if it's the majority, but we did a poll on Friday and it seemed like a lot of people are skeptical of this move. Are you surprised by Red Sox fans' skepticism of bringing back Theo?
1: Well, on the one hand, no, because uh, it, it has not been a good blast four seasons here for Red Sox fans. And I think that cynicism has been earned. On the other hand, uh, I, I, I do think that this is a positive move and, and a step forward for the organization. i am I've seen people on social media saying, oh, this is just a a PR move to distract from everything that's happened. I've seen people say, why didn't they spend the money on starting pitching rather than hiring Theo? You know, that that misses the point to me. I, I think they're adding someone who has been tremendously successful, who is a innovative and resourceful executive. And more to the point, uh, someone who's worked here before and worked with all the major actors, including uh, his longtime friend, of course, Sam Kennedy, team president and CEO, as well as uh, the the owners and the persons of John Henry, Tom Warner, and Mike Gordon. So he knows uh, the landscape. He knows how to work with these people. And to me, if you get an opportunity to add Theo Epstein to your Baseball hierarchy, even if it's only a part-time basis, then I don't see how that can't be a positive step.
2: So in your article, you said that uh, people with understanding of the arrangement say that Red Sox ownership is privately acknowledged that they haven't given the club the attention it's deserved in recent years. And the portfolio has grown and sort of left the Red Sox behind Theo, then presumably is going to be Red Sox oriented. He's not going to be helping with the Penguins and, you know, the PGA tour and things like that. Um, How different, of a job is it going to be from someone from what he was doing, you know, back in 2005, is he going to be hands on with the roster? What, what sort of, how do you see this working?
1: Yeah, I I think it's going to be a quite different role, Christian. And I would also take issue uh, with, while obviously the Red Sox and baseball are Theo's expertise and the area in which he has uh, by far the most experience and accomplishments and acclaim, he will be, helping out on some of those other FSG holdings. He'll be working with Kyle Dubas, the the GM uh, of the Pittsburgh Penguins. He'll be involved at least somewhat in hiring a new manager for Liverpool uh, because they are in search of one. So part of what made this job attractive to him, I don't think it's any secret that Theo has said he would like to someday be – very much involved in the ownership of a team, whether it's buying another team, whether it's being in on the ground floor of an expansion team, or who knows, maybe someday these Boston Red Sox, but uh, what attracted to him, what attracted him to this position is, is the ability to spread his wings a little bit and, uh, and get a taste of what other sports be it hockey or uh, European soccer or, uh, even NASCAR, uh with the Rush Racing, uh it, it was an opportunity to to become more versed in various other athletic uh levels, not just baseball. But that being said, as you alluded to, it's obviously that it's obvious that baseball and, and the Red Sox are his Uh, are, I think, going to be getting more focused than others, but not at the exclusion of the others. And as far as, you know, how would you compare what he is going to do to what he did in his first go-run with the Red Sox, I think very, very different. Um, He's here to, I, I think, sometimes hold some feet to the fire. He's here to ask questions. He's here to question the process by which they do things. And he's obviously here as a sounding board for Craig Breslow, someone he knows very well and, in fact, hired for his first post-playing job with the Cubs. So, uh, you know, you get get the benefit of Theo's experience and expertise, but he's not going to be, uh, you know, making waiver claims or suggesting (laughs) non-roster invitee contracts or any of that. But he's here to um, You know To, to uh, be a resource for Breslow um, And I think also Be a conduit Or a liaison Between baseball ops and ownership Because he knows right. uh, How that goes here He knows how important it is to have the Backing primarily Of John Henry He knows how John thinks um, He knows how to get John to perhaps come around and change his thinking on things. So I, I think in many ways that will be his his biggest service here, and that is acting as a bridge between ownership and baseball ops.
2: You and uh, Chris wrote about that. You said that reestablishing sort of communication, lines of communication back with, uh, with ownership is going to be a part of this as well. What does that say about what High and Bloom was dealing with then? Because – it didn't seem like I don't know, I mean, unless that's exactly how we wanted things to go. It didn't seem like he had that kind of uh, of an ear. And also it seemed like the philosophy of the organization was just very strict. We're not spending, we're not, you know, gonna go over this number. They're still not doing that. They're cutting payroll now, even. It just, you know, they need Theo Epstein to come in and tell them that's not a winning strategy.
1: Well, I, I think more than anything, Theo understands how John thinks. And has a history with him, and that there had been times, and there were times when Theo was here the first time as the GM, that um, that he pushed back on John, or that he uh, reminded John that, or convinced John that that it was time to make a move, that it was time to do something out of their comfort zone. Um, I, I don't think that. Sam Kennedy despite his long tenure in the organization necessarily has that same relationship and background with John Henry and Sam is also not involved day to day in the baseball ops not that Theo is going to be this time but he knows the infrastructure and how it works and I think from a distance and given his long friendship with Sam Kennedy he certainly has been kept up to date on what's gone on in his absence, and he talks to people around the game. So I I think there's a feeling that, you know, Theo knows how the the power dynamic works in the Red Sox uh, ownership and hierarchy and can better the communication, can uh, get a more consistent message out, um, and all the things, you know, where they have looked somewhat shambolic here in the last (laughs) few years where – you have one of the owners saying we're going to be full throttle and the other apparently behind the scenes telling people that the payrolls coming down and we're not going to spend a lot this winter those kind of messaging mistakes that they've had are very damaging to the team and the brand and the public uh you know viewpoint and i think there'll be a more consistent messaging um, with Theo making sure that everyone's on the same page.
2: Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, and in 2011, you know, people do forget this, Sean. John Henry did not side with Theo. He sided with Larry Lucchino, and Theo left, and they won after he left. So I, as much as I want to think that they'll sort of look to Theo and say, okay, you know, we, we trust your, your guidance on this, he, he wasn't always that kind of influence. There were times when John Henry overruled him to the point where he walked right out the door.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's probably a little more complicated than that, Christian, when we look back uh, you know, twelve, thirteen years ago from now. A lot I'm
2: simplifying happened. things a little bit, I'll I'll admit, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um I, I think that um you know, I, I think Theo at that point having one uh two World Series here, uh going up against some pushback, thought it was just time to uh to seek out a new challenge. And we know what happened when he went to the Cubs, uh, you know, five years later, their own championship drought was ended. So um, in a lot of ways, I I think the organization and Theo prospered at least for a while without one another. Uh, The Red Sox won again, as you referenced in 13 and won again in 18. They also finished first and won the division a couple of other years, but it's been the last few years where things have have obviously uh, shifted in a negative way with three last place finishes, uh, just one playoff appearance since 2018, and clearly they need to re examine how they're conducting business. So, in a sense, you know, they're putting the, the band back together again with some guys in different roles. In, it's ironic that you mentioned Myrie Lucchino because I think, in some ways, <clears throat> despite Um, the contentiousness that Lucchino and Theo Epstein had for a while, that in many ways, Theo is now taking on the Lucchino role, uh, asking the tough questions, re-examining the process, um, and occasionally being the guy to pound on the table to John Henry saying, no, I disagree, we need to do it this way, and having the, uh, the, the resume and the gravitas to convince John of those arguments,
2: wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to go back in time and tell Theo Epstein, "Hey, you know, in 2024, you're going to become Larry Lucchino? <laughs> wouldn't that be something? Like that's just, I mean, I, when you when I, you I remember the way it ended, like it's just that. He would have <laughs> been horrified at that
1: suggestion, but um, you know, as we grow older and uh, and learn um, maybe uh, even Theo would appreciate the irony of that statement now
2: maybe he would uh, before we let you go here Sean the off season obviously has been very disappointing from a personnel perspective uh, on the actual baseball diamond is there anything that this team can do I mean we we understand what the budget's going to be is there any way that they can that they can put something on the field this year or is this just going to be another bridge year
1: yeah, I, I would say it's more likely to be a bridge year. You know, the, the best case scenario you can constr- you can construct is that you know through Andrew Bailey and some of the other hires that have been made in the infrastructure that you get much improved performance out of a bunch of pitchers who have kind of plateaued in their development, so that guys like Whitlock and Hauk and Crawford. Take big steps forward and provide you with internal improvement, and that gets you a little closer to being an actual contender moving forward. With the arrival of guys like Teal and Meyer and Anthony next year, and then you start spending to augment. But um, I, I would I would bet that 24 is uh, is going to be a challenging year, and that a you know that a winning record would represent at least a step forward over where they've been the last handful of years.
2: Hey, I think a lot of people would take that. The Theo effect would be uh, be something you can talk about at the very least. Then, Sean yeah. McAdams, uh, great talking with you, my friend. Uh, great work on this uh, piece with Cotillo about Theo, and I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Sounds
2: good, Christian. Thanks for having me. All right. That is uh, Sean McAdam, Mass Live, joining us here on the Sunday Mass. 617 779 7937 7 There's your phone number. Quick break. When we come back, I saw something in the news about steroid Olympics. There's this guy who wants to bankroll something called the steroid Olympics. It's the Olympics, but everyone's on steroids. Like, legally. Well, legally, you know. You're encouraged to do steroids. I have some thoughts on that, and I'll take your phone calls next.
0: Now, more of it. Sunday Mass. Arcan on WEEI.
2: All right, it's 11:48 here, Boston Sports Original WEEI. It's Reverend Arcan, Sunday Mass. Nice to have you with us here. Thanks again to Sean McAdam for joining me in that last segment. We'll have Tom King, a couple of old timers today. We got Tom King coming up at 12:30 uh, as he'll talk Patriots and the uh, coaching staff. Ben McAdoo, uh, close to a job as assistant head coach, assistant to the head coach, I don't know exactly what his uh, title will be. But I know that things got real bad real quick for him in New York. That first year was great. And then the second year he benched Eli Manning, put in Geno Spills, his whole thing, and it was uh, was ugly. It was an ugly downfall for him out there. Anyways, um, I'll get to your phone calls in just a minute. I just wanted to mention this uh, real quickly. There's a billionaire named Peter Thiel. I feel like I know that name. I don't know why. Is he the one who sued Gawker with Hulk Hogan? Maybe it was him, I think. Anyway, he wants to to throw his money into something called the Olympics on steroids. Which, I mean, people in the Olympics now are on steroids, but whatever. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I feel like the only difference between... The these Olympic the steroid Olympics and like the regular Olympics is there won't be any masking agents like that's that's going to be the only real difference that you see. But anyway, uh, this guy is among several high profile profile venture capitalists who have backed the project. Um, and it is a uh, it's a Olympic Games aimed at aiding research into nutritional supplements and biohacks that push the boundaries of human performance. It's the brainchild of Dr. Aaron D'Souza, a lawyer. By training, who famously conceived Thiel's lawsuit against Gawker Media. Okay, so yeah, he was the one who sued Hulk Hogan. Or he helped Hulk Hogan sue Gawker. And Deadspin and all that. So I remember when that all happened. He plans to provide more details on April 17th to promote the controversial concept in Paris during the Real Olympics, which begin in July. Now, a lot of people are excited about this. Are you excited about this, Joseph? You like this idea? Uh, In theory, yes. I'm like a little concerned about uh, if anyone's going to die. But um, outside of that, I think it could be kind of cool. I mean, people will probably die. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but, like, look at, like, pro wrestlers. And I'm just thinking, like, sports where you can just do steroids. And I know sports, whatever. But, like, you know, these pro wrestlers don't live very long. Like, I hate to be dark about it, but they just don't. Um, They destroy their bodies. Uh, Here's the other thing. If you watch baseball, Major League Baseball from 1987 to, like, 2007 – this isn't going to be that new to you. Like, this isn't going to be something that you look at and go, wow, steroids. I've never seen a guy on steroids before. Like, we wa- we all watched baseball at that time. We all watched Canseco. Like, you know, we all saw McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Jason Giambi and Barry Bonds and Roger Clement. Like, we saw all those guys play and we knew they were on steroids and they couldn't have possibly been more roided out than, like, You'd see these guys, they'd come up to the plate, they'd roll up their sleeves and their arms would be pulsing, <laughs> like, like pulsating. It just, you know, they were clearly doing steroids. If you watch the NFL in the 80s and 90s, you know, you think Bosworth was out there running around like the Boz? Like, come on. We, we knew, We knew they were doing steroids. We all were aware of it, and they looked like they were on steroids. Bruce Smith was on so many steroids, and he was the best defensive lineman in the league for years. Uh, you know, like, and that didn't just suddenly go away either. I mean, now they have different ways of doing it and different ways of dosing you. And science will always be ahead of the people trying to stop people from doing steroids. But, like, I think what they're going for here is they're trying to get, like, that type of steroid. They're trying to get 90s MLB Bash Brothers steroids uh, into the Olympics or just have an Olympics where people are doing that. And I don't know. I mean, it seems like a cool idea, I guess, if people wanted to do it. But I don't know. I saw 20 years of that in baseball and you know maybe more in the NFL I don't I don't you know it's not like it's some novel idea for me that was that was the norm watching like popular sports in America for decades like it's just that's just the way it was so it's fine that they're doing it i guess i mean you know i'm not going to be uh, participating and i do think it's going to be a little you know oh, look at the advancements in science that we've seen like yeah we know like we know what pro athletes are doing we can see like We watch the Olympics. I'm not watching the Olympics going, yeah, none of these guys are on steroids. (laughs) Like, yeah, of course they are. Like, sure, they're just masking it differently or they're finding a new steroid they don't know how to test for yet or whatever it is that they're doing. But, like, you know, you really think it's going to be that much different? Maybe they're going to have, like, the cartoon Popeye muscles again, which like they did in baseball in all those years, which if they do, that's cool. I mean, you know, it's like WWF, basically, but I don't, you know, I don't feel like it's some new thing. I can't believe you turned down the halftime show and the Superhuman Olympics. Like, I know that's I know something arcane. Listen, I mean, I'm a busy guy. <laughs> I don't have time to be doing. I shooting up steroids and singing songs. <laughs> it's just, it's I'm very busy with the show. 779 nine seven ninety three seven is your phone number. Just wanted to touch on that real quick. Uh, let's go to uh, Steve in Fall River. He's a loyal caller. Hello, Steve. What's up? Peter Thiel, I believe, is the founder
4: of Cisco Systems or Micron. He's a tech guy. He was part of PayPal. Uh, I think he was one of the PayPal guys. Well, he's done other things. The first sure. thing he did, I think, was Cisco. Okay, this smacks of like the Roman emperors with the gladiators. You <laughs> put does. them out there and see how they do. And this roid, this roid, roi Royd, steroid rage. Mm-hmm. If you look that up in the dictionary, if there's still a dictionary, there's a picture of Bill
2: Romanowski. <laughs> yeah, Romo, it's a good one there. <laughs> Decked his own teammate right in practice. Uh, Broke his orbital bone.
4: So I have. So thank you for Sean McGannum. So basically, Theo bought into Fenway Sports Group. Mm -hmm. Not, you can't just buy into the Red Sox anymore. So he bought into Fenway Sports Group. Uh, I could say, um, where do I go, Christian, to get back the hours of my life that got spent on uh, where Bill Belichick was going uh, in a a trade and the elegant solution and the effects of Bill O'Brien coming here on the offense?
2: Uh, listen, it. Steve, I I'd lo- I'd, we're up against the break. i got to let you go. I'd love to have that time back, too. Uh, you know, this past Patriots season, I'd love to have every single week of it back. That was an awful season. It was uh, it was brutal. And listen, with Bill Belichick, I mean, people wanted to know where he was going. Don't act like that wasn't some topic. He didn't end up going anywhere, but that was a topic for sure. Uh, 617-779-7937. I had to let him go because, you know. Got a break coming up here. Anyway, I see some calls still on the line. I will get to you, I promise, in the next segment. Also, we will switch things up, talk more about the Patriots and their off-season targets, uh, their new coaching staff, and how long this rebuild is expected to take. Also, Tom King joins me next hour. That's all coming up right after this.